Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very happy to bring the conversation I had with Peter Saris. Uh, Peter is professor of late antique, medieval, and Byzantine studies at the University of Cambridge. Uh, he is widely published in the field. He's written some popular pieces as well. He's also the author or editor of at least eight books on the history of late antiquity, the early Middle Ages, and he is the author of the new book, Justinian, Emperor, Soldier, Saint. Uh, and that's what we talk about in this conversation. Um, as I say in, in the conversation, fabulous book. This book was fabulous. I did not know a lot about Justinian and you know, more so as a kind of a, here's another ruler in a long series of rulers. Um, and so to really isolate on one uh, was was really wonderful, and I really appreciated how much uh, it, the writing is very clear and really gives you a sense of the importance of Justinian. We talk about the overview of Justinian's life. Uh, we talk about the context of the Roman Empire pre-Justinian era. We talk about the rise of Justin, who was before him, and, and how he adopted Justinian, and then Justinian becoming the, the ruler. We talk about lessons Justinian learned from Justin, some of the urgency and energy in the early uh, Justinian period and, and the amount of religious law he in, invoked. Talk about the importance of Armenia at this time, the zealous nature of Justinian having religious laws and enacting on them. Talk about Hagia Sophia and his building uh, various uh, places around uh, the region and many of the religious propaganda that he promoted, his military campaigns, uh, how his laws were uh, took effect later in his life and what the impact was there. Talk about some of the dynamics with his wife and how important she was, not just for him personally, but also as a type of co-ruler. Uh, Talk about how he handled pandemic and disease at the kind of later stages of his uh, reign and uh, a little bit of his death and then the legacy of Justinian and really his um, commitment to his religious beliefs and trying to instantiate that within law. You know, whether you agree or disagree, uh, he's an important figure for kind of the spread and the institutionalization of Christianity probably um, at that time. And, and subsequent uh, decades and centuries after. So he's, he's an important figure, important figure to know and understand, and, and I really found him a fascinating character. Um, and, and Peter does such a nice job of, you know, bringing him to life and making him kind of out of, a, you know, textbooks or history books or things like that and making him a, a real-life person and a lot of complexity. And so it was, it was, it was absolutely wonderful talking to Peter, who's obviously quite brilliant and uh, just absolutely wonderful to, to, to chat with. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. So like, uh, follow, share, uh, feel free to contribute if you, if you so uh, feel like doing that. That always helps. Appreciate that. You can also find uh, the podcast on YouTube if that's where you listen. And uh, yeah, to just share it widely for those that you think would be interested. And, uh, now I bring you, Peter, Sarah. I'm here with Peter Saris. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, 
I've been greatly looking forward to uh, speaking with you. Same here. No, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you've written a, an excellent book. I, I really, I saw it and I said, I want to read this. And then I read it and I was, I was very, very pleased. Uh, it's well-written, really, really good uh, uh, book all around. Uh, the book is Justinian Emperor Soldier Saint, and it's about the, the life of uh, Justinian. Uh, for listeners, tell uh, folks uh, what your um, kind of professional and academic background is, um, and what you uh, what you currently do, and, uh, and what you're currently up to. So I'm uh, currently professor of uh, late antique uh, Byzantine and, and medieval studies at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Uh, and I've been there for just over 20 years. Um, before that, I trained as a medieval and Byzantine historian in, in Oxford. Uh, there's a big center for Byzantine research. And periodically over the years, I've um, spent quite a lot of time in the US. There's a, a big center in my subject at Dumbarton Oaks out in Georgetown in Washington. I always try oh. to make sure I spend a chunk of the year out there uh, doing research and uh, burying myself in the library. Um, so I, I, I work across the field of uh, Byzantine and medieval history, but my main focus and my real uh, preoccupation has always really been the East Roman Empire in the 6th century in the age of Justinian, uh, uh, and that's what I've written this book about. Hmm. I didn't know you were over here uh, in my neck of the woods. I live just outside uh, D.C., so it's, uh, that's nice to know. Yeah, that, no, uh, the whole of July. So I was there this summer and it's... Uh, oh, very nice. Oh, you're here in the worst month. You're here when it's super hot and humid. <laughs> it means I get my work done. <laughs> um, I guess I'm just curious. Uh, sometimes people fall into these things. Sometimes it's by choice or you know, more, more directed. But why that specific time period and area of the Byzantine or, or Roman Empire, you know, this kind of 6th century how did you fall into that? I mean, it's not a very long you know, uh, you know, period of, um, of an empire, but why that period did you choose to kind of, kind of park there? Well, in a sense, it, it, it was almost random. When I uh, first began my, my degree in Oxford uh, uh, back in the early 90s, and in the UK we specialise in our undergraduate degrees, uh, the first paper I had to study was on uh, the emergence of society in post-Roman Britain. So the first thing I had to look at was the demise of Roman power in the West and the emergence of, of post-Roman societies, first of all in Britain and then uh, across the continent in the West as, as well. And that brought me into contact uh, with, uh, with Justinian and the Eastern Roman Empire. And it struck me that at the time we were still very much taught that period, that transition from Roman rule as a sort of a, a narrative of inevitable decline. And what was interesting about Justinian when I encountered him was that in many respects, uh, the history of his reign undermined that narrative because here was a period when the surviving Eastern Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire in the East, as I say, was, was, was resurgent. It was conquering new territory. It seemed to be on the up again. And I found that fascinating. Uh, and I was lucky that because at school and from my personal background, I had quite a lot of Greek, I studied quite a lot of Latin, that transition to move eastwards and to look at what was going on in Constantinople in the east was a relatively straightforward one for me. But in a sense, I'm really sort of still pursuing ideas uh, and questions I first encountered in my first term, really, uh, as an undergraduate uh, quite a long time ago. Mm. This is very, very interesting. So, Justinian, uh, I, I, again, I'm no expert on, on, on any of this stuff. 
is this a kind of um, like a redress of, of him and his legacy? When was the last time, I guess, for like a general kind of you know audience, was there something on Justinian? I guess to, just again, on your end of things, where do you see this, this book um, in terms of, you know, audience and how it's going to, you know, get out there for people uh, of what it is to say about Justinian? On Justinian, it, uh, the last time we had a, um, a full history of his reign written in English is just uh-huh. over 25 years ago. It's about a generation ago uh, uh-huh. when we had studies by uh, Evans in Canada and Moorhead in Australia, both wrote studies at around the same mm-hmm. time. But mm-hmm. those um, studies in many ways took their lead from our chief contemporary historian of the age of Justinian, the historian Procopius who was quite anti the emperor and didn't really share his, his policy agenda. Mm. And, so, and I think that there's a bit, always been a problem with Justinian that we've tended to view him through the lens of Procopius. And what mm. I found more and more looking at the emperor was that people weren't really getting the emperor's agenda, what preoccupied him and what his chief priorities were. And what I'm trying to do is give more of a sense of what mattered to Justinian and to try to look at his reign in the round. Justinian tends to be studied from a legal perspective by lawyers, from a theological perspective uh, by theologians, and from a military perspective by a lot of particularly English-speaking historians. And what I try to do in this study is draw all of those aspects together and, as I say, try to see the world of the 6th century in terms of what mattered most to Justinian. Now, to Justinian, warfare mattered, sure. Uh, But from even before he becomes emperor, he is fascinated by, preoccupied with issues of Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. He's clearly fascinated with the law and is ready, has a massive legal agenda as well, ready to mm-hmm. go the moment he comes to the, to the throne. And I think sort of trying to draw those aspects together and get his list of priorities right is central to what I was trying to do in this book, which I hope I've uh, managed to uh, convey to the, to the reader. Oh, uh, 110%. I mean, the book is a uh, kind of a, a masterclass in presenting the kind of gestalt of the whole person. It's the whole psychological profile of Justinian. I finished reading this book and I felt like I, I was almost, I was almost, I felt cheated. I said, why have I not heard about this guy in in this kind of way? I mean, it was a very complete picture. You get the very full profile of him. Very, very um, readable. I mean, people kind of get nervous with history because it's dates and facts, but, and there's certainly that in there, but it really, I got a, a sense of, of, of his, you know, temperament and his personality. I mean, I think one of the things that really struck me about him was how, what's the word? Spiritual is not the word, but it's somewhere in there where it's more of, yes, I mean, he was always very religious and the legal components, but there was this, almost this mystical aspect of, of how much he really cared about, uh, Christendom and, and what what he was up to and how important that was that that really kind of laid an imprint on me. I mean, all the other stuff is great too, but that was I don't know. It just felt very different in the way in which you described it and talked about it. You know, kind of uh, was was resounding. So, so yeah, it was, it was, it was well. Yeah, I think it's, it's very easy for us to assume that uh, rulers are only interested in religion from a very um, utilitarian perspective. They're trying to use it to achieve their ends by, by other ends, as it were, through the mm-hmm. means of religion. And of course, there's, there's, there's an element to that. A lot of Justinian's religious agenda will be pursuing 
uh, other political aims as well. But here is someone who, as I say, from long before his emperor, we can, we can show is sort of genuinely interested in the intricacies of doctrine in a way that's often quite alien to the modern mindset. And it's part of that aspect, which I think comes across. Justinian's unusual in that if we draw all these types of evidence together, we can actually get a sense of his character, of this yeah. workaholic, micromanaging, obsessive, mm-hmm. constantly um, uh, uh, impetuous character who's rushing everybody on, even when that isn't always uh, to, in his interest, although in the interest of his subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that certainly shines through. So it was uh, really seeing him in a, in, a, in a new light. So it's great. So, so, so why don't you just kind of parachute us in to the context here? So we talk about the rise of, of uh, Justinian. Um, so maybe just a little bit of some, some, some backdrop there. I mean, obviously, Augustus is an important early figure. Uh, the Roman Empire is centuries long. There was the r- rivalry with Persia. Uh, the rule of four, all these things. But how are all of these components uh, kind of an important backdrop that gets us to the Roman Empire in the early 6th century? So as you say, I mean, the the origins of the imperial office, which Justinian inherited, and he has a strong historical sensibility and understands or tries to understand his place in history. Uh, As you say, go back to Augustus in the 1st century uh, and this world in which a single Roman emperor resident in Rome, ruled this vast domain extending from Britain to Egypt and Syria. But crucially, in the third century, this unified Roman Empire, dominated by the, by the, the figure and the image of the emperor in Rome, uh, came under very considerable simultaneous military threats from both north and east and from the East in particular, by virtue of the sudden emergence of an aggressive new superpower rival in the form of the Sasanian Empire of Persia. Now, what we see in response to that is that we, the, the old system centered on the city of Rome and the model of one emperor breaks down, and we see the emergence of a more devolved imperial system, whereby you will have one emperor resident primarily in the East to face down the Persians, and one in the West to face down the Northern Barbarians, with each of these having a deputy. This is the, the, the rule of four that you refer to, the so-called Tetrarchy, that takes shape under Diocletian in the late 3rd, early 4th century. Now, what's really important here as background to Justinian is that because the Sasanians are regarded as the most uh, dangerous foe, because the Sasanians are regarded as the most prestigious foe, ruling over a great empire and claiming universal domination, the senior emperor... Diocletian and thereafter, tends to be based in the east to face them down. So we see the shift in the center of gravity and authority eastwards in the Roman mm-hmm. world. And that then gets consolidated, as it were, in stone uh, when Constantine uh, builds his new imperial center, Constantinople, and bases himself in the east. So back, crucial background for Justin is that shift eastwards. And then in the 5th century, the uh, fragmentation and then effective disappearance of the Western Roman Empire as mounting military pressure in the West leads to the breakdown of the imperial system there. So you end up in a situation uh, by the late 5th century whereby there's been a shift in the center of gravity of the Roman world eastwards, but then the Western Empire has fragmented and disappeared, effectively leaving just the emperor in Constantinople in place. And what's crucial to Justinian is uh, an awareness in imperial circles and the circles in which he is raised in particular, 
of this lost world. This, this sense that a universal Roman dominion uh, has been in the West, including the West, has been lost, and that core heartlands of the empire in Italy, in Africa, in Gaul and elsewhere have been lost to direct imperial rule and are now ruled over by barbarians. And in particular, by barbarians who, from the perspective of Constantinople and this empire, which since the age of Constantine has been becoming increasingly Christian, barbarians who are regarded as heretical. They are followers of a form of Christianity which the imperial church had denounced uh, from the late 4th century onwards. And these facts, combined with a sudden revival of warfare with Persia just prior to Justinian's reign, lead to an intense sense of insecurity and uncertainty and political crisis in imperial circles to which Justinian would attempt to respond in the course of his reign. Mm. Yeah, you set that up very nicely. It gives a kind of context of the environment in which, which the world is, uh, this part of the world. So he has this uncle, which you talk about um, in the first part of the book, uh, Justin. And, mm. and, and he has a rise to power, and there's a way in which he ruled, which you can, you can tell us about. And then, I guess importantly, he, he comes to adopt uh, Justinian. So maybe talk a little bit about his uncle Justin and how he he ruled, and this whole adoption process of of what happened and why him and and how that came about. Yes, Justinian's rise to power was really largely due in its first stages to his uncle uh, uh, Justin, as you say. Uh, now, importantly, the family uh, came from the Western Balkans in what's now uh, southern Serbia, in what in a fifth uh, and early sixth century context would really have been thought of as the sort of the empire's wild west. Mm. Uh, this had always been a, an impoverished region of the Roman world, one of the least urbanized, least uh, civilized parts of it. And in the mid fifth century in particular, around the time that Justin would have been born, it had been subjected to devastating barbarian attacks at the hands of groups such as the Huns. Uh, and when Justin was born in the mid-5th century, it probably wasn't clear to what extent this region was e even under Roman rule. There's probably a much more of a sort of a bitterly contested no-man's land over which no one authority uh, really held effective sway. Mm. Anyway, this is an impoverished landscape. Justin is raised in poverty. We're told by a later source that the young man works as a swineherd. And in order to escape the poverty of his upbringing and improve his lot, around the year uh, 470, so when he's about 20 or so, uh, Justin and a couple of friends began uh, the long march east to Constantinople, which would have taken them about a month, uh, heading to Constantinople in the hope of being recruited into the Roman army and forging a career for themselves. So Justin and his two friends arrive in Constantinople, but crucially they arrive in Constantinople at a moment when the arrangements for the palace guards are being dramatically overhauled. Uh, you want your palace guardsmen to be good fighters, good at defending the emperor, but you also want them to be physically imposing and, and impressive to look at. And Justin, we're told, and his two friends were, were tall, they were good looking, they catch the eye of the uh, recruiting sergeant, and they're signed up. And this then begins Justin's advance. He probably gets an education from the army. He has a career in the palace, but also as a fighting soldier. And he progressively advances through the ranks until by the time he's quite an old man, he ends up in charge of one of the, the two key uh, guards units guarding the palace in very close proximity to the emperor. During the course of that career, he also marries. And it's interestingly, interesting that although he'd have been well-placed to find himself quite a, an aristocratic bride through his connections at court, instead he seems to marry for love. 
So we know that he marries this woman who is a former slave girl uh, 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 with whom he forms a lasting bond and who he will eventually uh, take with him into the palace. And they clearly have a very happy marriage. Well, they don't have a children. Mm. Uh, Justin is very family-minded. He maintains connection with his family back home in the Western Balkans. And so he seems to write to his sister, who has a son, Petrus, saying, send the boy to Constantinople. I'll look after him. I'll make sure he has a good life. And so Petrus, the future emperor Justinian, is sent to Constantinople, I think probably when he's about eight years old. And there he's educated by Justin. He's raised by him. Uh, Justin uh, arranges for him too to be recruited into the palace guard. And he ends up adopting him uh, as his son. We don't know exactly when the adoption happens, uh, but it has happened by the time of a crucial development around the year 518, when uh, 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 Justin, as I say, is one of the two heads of the palace guard. At that point, the reigning emperor Anastasius dies without really having made proper arrangements for his succession. And you get this power struggle at court with different aristocratic uh, factions vying for control. And eventually they agree on Justin as a new emperor, as a sort of compromise candidate, assuming he's an old man, he won't be around for too long. This for Justin is the second great break. The first is being adopted by his uncle in Constantinople. Mm-hmm. The second is his uncle becoming now emperor. And Justin uh, uh, begins to, uh, uh, Justinian's advance now through the upper echelons, initially making him a general. Uh, and then we see Justin beginning to machinate in his own interest and advance himself at court until about the year 525, he's appointed Justin's deputy. Uh, and then in 527, as Justin is ailing, about five months before the emperor dies, he's made co-emperor. So he, Justinian has, as it were, two great breaks of luck, but he also contributes that luck himself. Uh, he is involved in some of the machinations to get Justin made emperor uh, in 518 when he's in the palace guards. And he spends a lot of time while his uncle is emperor building up a support base for himself in the church, in the army, and on the streets of Constantinople. Hmm. So a few questions here. If Justin was, you know, had a really nice, you know, loving relationship with his wife and he wanted kids, was it, uh, and maybe we don't know, but was it a choice that he didn't have kids of his own with her? Was it um, some type of infertility kind of thing, or it's just unclear? I think it's, it's unclear. I think the safest thing to assume is that they, they tried and they couldn't do it. Mm. Didn't, like, it, it didn't work out for them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess this, this whole thing about, um, I know different uh, periods of history, different empires do different things. This idea of succession was this idea, kind of the second part of luck. So the first part of, you know, is, is, is Justinian becomes adopted, which is very lucky. But the, the, the second piece, is what is it about um, him being the successor? Was it, well, that's the only adopted son and, and that's it? Or was there a kind of process for succession as emperor? And, and, and how did the public receive that, if, if, if uh, that all that mattered? I, I think it's important that Justin doesn't immediately appear to have had any plans to automatically make Justinian his heir to the throne or success. He's quite careful early on in his reign not to be seen to overload Justinian with honours. Uh, yes, he makes him uh, a, a general, but he makes a general of the army in the, uh, in the near vicinity of Constantinople. 
But at the same time, he gives the same position to another very well-regarded character called Vitalian, who has a lot of support in, in Constantinople and would, be, would have been regarded by many as a, as a very good successor to the throne. Mm. Uh, he does give uh, Justinian the office of consul in 522. That's a very important position which can be used to uh, uh, project one to uh, a more successful uh, uh, a more high, uh, 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 could be used as a, as it were, a springboard to the imperial office. Mm. But he's very careful, as I say, not to be seen to line up Justinian too readily. And we're told by one source that Justinian's uh, allies in the Senate lobbied Justin early on to have Justinian appointed uh, co uh, ruler. And Justin says, no, I I'm really not sure about this. He's, he's too young. And so there's a certain, it's always dangerous if you're emperor, if there's too obviously an heir lined up to succeed you because that then makes you more readily disposable yeah and justin is quite good at keeping himself on the throne in quite difficult circumstances so i think he only really he, he draws closer to justinian and starts to draw him more closely in line to succession after two developments i think one is the death of his wife on whom he's very dependent around the year 522 and then after around the year 525 when it may be he's already ailing and is starting to be more anxious about uh, the succession to him. But it's, it's, I say that the position of heir is something which Justinian and his allies are lobbying Justin to line him up for, but it's not an automatic process. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's very important. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. So this, this aspect of him being a high-ranking military post, the consul, and he's in and around Constantinople, which is obviously the center of, 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 of things. Um, how did this whole upbringing and how he was positioned and how he was doing all these things while Justin was still emperor, how much of a, of an impact did this have? Because if I remember correctly, you say in the book that, you know, his uncle does it one way and there was a lot of observing and a lot of things he was learning and, and trying to understand. So that way, when he is finally made emperor, He's already, or not already, but he's got a really good idea based on the things he had done of how he wants to do it and how he wants to do it in a particular way. Because you, I guess in terms of his formation and this and being uh, in Constantinople, in the military with the consul, how did these things kind of shape the kind of um, uh, worldview or the framework of how he wanted to reign eventually? Well, and I think his time as a general is, is probably more important than is sometimes supposed. Mm. Uh, as I say, uh, he's made a, a general of the army outside Constantinople, uh, uh, the so-called Pycental Army, uh, uh, by Justin. We have no evidence of Justin as a fighting soldier, but he is probably from that point on, and I think almost certainly from 525, when he's made deputy emperor or Caesar, involved in the formation of imperial strategy. So I think that starts locking him into, as it were, how he thinks about the empire's military priorities and the military threats. His period as general is also really important because it's probably during that period that he talent spots two individuals who, who will be crucial to his period as, uh, of active rule, his period uh, uh, of emperorship. Uh, uh, John the Cappadocian, a ruthless tax collector, uh, who he will appoint as his chief minister, and who, as I say, he first seems to encounter when he's a general, and crucially, Belisarius. Uh, a, a fellow uh, Balkaner, as it were, a, a young man from the Balkans, uh, who is made one of Justinian's military entourage, and who, when he's emperor, he will appoint as one of his most trusted generals. Those are connections he forges when he's a general. 
He's also in, involved in the Emperor Justin's attempts to um, uh, uh, draw closer politically and theologically to the papacy in Rome. This is going to be a very important theme again of Justinian's reign, how one deals with the papacy, how one deals with the theological disputes uh, uh, of the day. And as you say, he's observing how the court works and he uses the office of consul in particular uh, to buy up support. The consul, during the course of his year in office, was allowed to distribute the so-called consular largesse, vast sums in gold and presents and gifts, which he would circulate amongst the population of Constantinople. We're told that Justinian's consular celebrations were the most spectacular anybody could, Im uh, could remember. This was a deliberate effort on the part of Justinian to buy up support amongst the different political components of society in Constantinople, ready for his move into power. But he's also observing, as you say, how his uncle reigns. Justin, uh, despite some of the, some of the uh, coverage we have against him, wasn't a particularly active emperor, but nor was he a particularly lazy one. His, his, the legislation we have issued under his reign bears comparison to that of, of his successors. But Justinian was clearly um, increasingly uh, irritated by what he perceived to be the slow pace of reform and legislation. Mm under his uncle, such that when he is made co-emperor with his uncle, we have a sudden explosion of legislation, which is clearly driven by Justinian and his sense of the agenda that is needed in Constantinople, in the Imperial Palace at that moment in time. Mm. So yeah, so, so bring us to, so you're kind of getting us there. So to, to bring us to where he becomes emperor and he's, he's, he's reigning and you, mentioned that he had this this type of energy and this kind of creativity again he kind of different from his uncle i guess what was it in the beginning when he first gets there of what were his major motivations because he does have this emphasis on religious administration which i'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll get to but in the beginning and with this energy and he's he's, he's new there and he's he's been observing things for a bit what was his kind of motivations in the beginning of, of his reign? Well, I think there's a strong sense that comes across from his legislation of his frustration. Uh, I think one gets a sense, as I say in the book, of him being a sort of a, a, a middle-aged man in a hurry once he gets his, and he's desperate to get his hands on the reins of power at last. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and he constantly goes on about what he regards as the indolence of his predecessors on the throne, be it in the field of military activity or the law or theology, this, this theme. Uh, comes up. Uh, his main preoccupations are religion, cracking down on pagans and others who he regards as a, a cause of um, uh, moral pollution in the capital. Uh, this is a very strong theme. The, the, sixth, the early 6th century is a period of very intense apocalyptic expectation in some Christian circles, and a sense of, the, of divine judgment being imminent. It's possible that Justinian is to some extent influenced by this, and he has this determination perhaps that he has to ensure that the souls of his subjects are ready for divine judgment, and that requires the emperor to crack the whip in terms of their moral improvement. So mm. cracking down on religious minorities, a very marked priority from the moment he comes to the throne. Upgrading defences with Persia, a very major priority, the early 6th century having witnessed a, a resurgence of Roman-Persian warfare. Uh, and also, I think, initiating initiated very early on major legal reform, not just in terms of this huge uh, outpouring of legislation, uh, which marks the first uh, eight years of his reign, 
but also a concerted effort which he starts putting into effect from very early on to start to codify the inherited body of Roman law. The problem of Roman law being when Justinian comes to power that so many laws have been issued by emperors. There are so many different sources of law in the Roman system, such that the opinions of legal scholars can be cited in court. It's become very difficult to work out what the law on any particular issue is. Justinian is determined to sort this out by imposing much greater clarity and order on the legal system upon which the administrative system of the empire more generally depends. But those are his three occupations, uh, getting ready for war, getting ready for judgment and cracking down on religious dissent and, and, and imposing order on the body of the law. Hmm. So I want to come to the, the legal aspects, but before we do, I'm curious, I had this conversation uh, with um, Adrian Goldsworthy. He has a book out on uh, yep. Roman Persia, yep. and he talks about their rivalry for 700 years. And it's, mm. it's, uh, it's, I don't know how he wrote all of that history in 400 pages. It's, it's so incredible how he did all that. Uh, it's a great book. And th- this came up there. I'm, I'm curious from, from, I guess, the angle or the perspective of Justinian, how did Justinian handle Armenia with the Persians? So I talked about this conversation, but for listeners, you have the Roman Empire, and then you have the Persian Empire, or the, the, the coming you know, Persian Empire, and, and very, very formidable. And there was this period of, or there were periods of, yes, some conflict, but then also periods where they kind of were able to kind of co-mingle or co-habitate, you know, the, the region, you know, okay, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't conflictual per se. So there's all these ebbs and flows over time. But sandwiched in between these two empires is Armenia, which, which isn't uh, a region that is, is pretty independent. There are these kind of independence of the region, which is fascinating. And um, how did Justinian kind of handle Armenia you know, with the Persians during, during his reign early on? Yes, the, the issue with Armenia is you have, a, as it were, a direct Roman-Persian frontier, which, if you think about it in terms of being the frontier between Syria and Iraq today, isn't entirely correct, but isn't 100% wrong. I think that, that's mm. a good way to think about it. Mm. Control of that frontier can be achieved by mastery of the Caucasus to the north, with Armenia mm. at its heart, mm-hmm. or the desert frontier to the south. Mm. Now, in terms of that direct Roman-Persian frontier in Syria, the Persians and the Romans don't really have, by the 6th century, much by way of territorial uh, um, ambitions at each other's expense. The, Pers- the Sasanian Persians will typically raid into Roman territory uh, for booty and to, uh, as it were, to enhance the prestige of the ruling Persian emperor, the ruling Shah. This is what's often termed prestige garnering warfare. The one area where the two empires have really significant territorial clashes is Armenia. The point being that the most important economic heartlands of the Sasanian Empire are in Iraq, and they're very vulnerable to attack from the mountain passes that run from north to south in the Caucasus. And the Roman territories on the Anatolian plateau are also very vulnerable to the east-west marches across the valleys of Armenia. So each empire could be thinking defensively, but but when thinking defensively, that will want them to want to strengthen themselves at the expense of the other in Armenia. This is why Armenia is always a flashpoint. Mm. Uh, During the warfare that occurs in the early 6th century, the Persians have launched an unprovoked attack from a Roman perspective 
on the Eastern Roman Empire in Syria, primarily advancing initially through Armenia. So Armenia is very much in the mind of Justinian and those around him. And what we see him doing is uh, uh, three things, really. Um, first of all, he establishes a new military commander in the region, a new general, the Magister Militum per Armeniam, in order to oversee Roman military operations. And he gives that man an army, an army made up of a proper Roman army made up of Roman uh, recruits. Hitherto, the Romans in the region have been primarily dependent on the military levies of the local uh, Armenian nobility, who could be unreliable. Mm. He also tries to um, integrate the Roman territories of Armenia more fully into the administration of the empire, making those territories more like every other province, again, by undermining the power of the great Armenian noble families. He also attempts to bolster the Roman position in the Caucasus more generally through a program of missionary diplomacy, um, establishing, first of all, imperial Christianity in frontier zones around Armenia and the other Caucasian kingdoms, such as Lazica, which he's brought in, but Sanica along the Laz border. And then once Christian missionaries are there, putting boots in on the ground by sending Roman troops in to consolidate rule there. So you have a combination in the Caucasus of military strategy, uh, religious strategy, and, uh, as I say, an attempt to, 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 to claw these territories and incorporate them more fully into the empire. And it's a strategy which is pretty effective, uh, as we see in terms of subsequent resistance to Roman uh, attacks on, uh, Armen on Roman territories of Armenia from Pers-Armenia in the, in the years that follow. Well, it's something that again you're talking about this frontier. I mean, it's it's uh, whether whether they they like it or not, Armenia becomes a critical a critical space, especially when you have another big empire on the other side of things. So it's 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 a it's a very interesting uh, space. Uh, just as a footnote here, I had a lovely conversation with um, Jacob Mikanowski, who's a he's a, a writer. He wrote this book recently on Eastern Europe. And we talk. He talks about many different countries, like Romania and and, and uh, Moldova. And he talks about you know some of the caucus states. And he goes, he goes, yeah. He's like, I didn't talk about Armenia too much in the book. He's like, because they're just very complicated. He's, he's like, he's like, they currently are. He was like, they have, they've kind of maintained a lot of their kind of independence, and there's less like admixture, and then other ways there is. He's like, it's just a very and like, and then he meant, made this comment of. He's like, and this is kind of true historically too, from what I understand. Like, it's just for a while, this region, I think also because of the terrain is a little bit different. There's a lot of mountain regions, things like that. So it's just, a, Armenia is a, is a very fascinating place in terms of uh, uh, our, you know, anthropology and our history and things like that for, for, for many, many centuries now. And they're a cause of instability in relationships between the great powers, not just in terms of the ambitions of the powers, but their own ambitions. And mm. that the Armenians have a, a vested interest in playing the Romans and the Persians off against each other in order mm. to maximize their autonomy. And mm. that's another element of fluidity in mm. superpower relations in this period. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. So, so, so let's talk about some of the legal components here. So why, I mean, I know it's not the only way, but why was he pretty... Justinian was pretty tough on on using many legal laws to crack down on paganism, elevating Christianity. He wanted to overhaul this legal education in the empire. Um, why was he so? I mean, is it is it fair to say he was zealous about Christianity and then wanted to put his money where his mouth was and said, "Hey, we're going to do this uh, legally as well and crack down on paganism." 
And um, so I guess why why that kind of approach? And then second to that is um, how much of that kind of push really uh, uh, expedited the way in which Christianity kind of spread and was instantiated within Europe uh, and in, in certain regions uh, of Europe that we see later on in centuries later. I think there are the two aspects here. If, if you uh, bear with me, I'll take that the second part of your question first. Yeah, please. Um, since the early 6th century, emperors in Constantinople had become increasingly alert to the extent to which uh, missionary activity, the proselytization of the imperial form of Christianity beyond the empire's frontiers, could be used in order to draw neighboring peoples into the political orbit of Constantinople. We're starting a, a growing sort of politicization of Christian missionary activity. So in the early 6th century, uh, the imperial authorities have gone to great efforts to draw the Franks into the embrace of the imperial church by adopting what we would call Catholic Christianity, Christianity in its imperial form. Uh, earlier in the reign of Justin, concerted efforts have been made to use, uh, to use Christianity in the Caucasus, imperial Christianity in the Caucasus in that way, and also in Southern Arabia in order mm -hmm. to extend imperial influence. Now, under Justinian, we see that, that policy being pursued very concertedly, again, in the Caucasus and in, uh, in the Balkans and Central Europe as a, 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 a Christian missionary activity for imperial political purposes, as well as fundamentally religious ones. That's going to be very important in terms of the spread of the imperial form of Christianity. Uh, the, in terms of the subsequent history of the imperial or Catholic form of Christianity, it's also going to be very important that Justinian's armies will destroy the main, the two main kingdoms associated with the main non-Catholic form of Christianity, mm. the so-called Aryan form of Christianity, mm. in terms of the, the, the Ostrogoths and the Vandals. Mm. We'll set that aside. We'll probably, probably come back to them later. Within the empire, Justinian's line is the previous emperors had legislated against pagans, of course, in, in, in theory, but they've never really done it in practice. Yeah. Um, and this is always his complaint. This, again, it's part of his complaint about indolence. Again, they had legislated against heretics in theory, those whose definition of faith was deemed to be uh, erroneous by the imperial church, but never, they never really moved against them sufficiently in practice. What we see early in Justinian's reign is an attempt to use uh, the law and use legal officers and to use officers of the church to actually put these laws into effect and make the laws more draconian. So previous emperors had issued legislation against pagan uh, rights, pagan practices. Justinian, for the first time, makes it illegal even to be a pagan. Uh, pagans are to convert, go into exile, or if they uh, only pretend to convert, they are to die. This is the most extreme anti-pagan legislation any Christian emperor had ever uh, uh, put in, uh, had ever passed, and we have evidence in certain localities, at least, of it being put into effect. So this is very important. Also, Justinian applies steady downward pressure on the legal status of other. Uh, minority religious groups. Roman law had been quite protective of the legal status of the emperor's many Jewish subjects. Justinian removes quite a lot of that legal cover and, uh, and starts once again uh, imposing quite severe legal penalties on his many Jewish subjects. Uh, this is quite ominous uh, for, the, for his Jewish subjects in much of the Roman Near East. Also, there's a concern for personal mo mo morality which goes well beyond what any previous emperor 
uh, had done. Justinian's the first emperor to persecute uh, men for having sex with men. Hmm. Uh, uh, this is a very important uh, feature uh, as well. So we see the use, the, an attempt not just to legislate, but to put the laws into effect in a much mm-hmm. more concerted mm-hmm. way. Yeah. But this, I say, is part of this moralizing religious agenda, which forms part of a much broader policy as well of trying to impose order on Roman law, order on Roman society, and Justinian's clear belief that whilst we often think of Roman law and the legislation of Roman emperors as being primarily rhetorical and symbolic, Justinian believes that you can reform society and reconstitute it on the basis of law. Mm. Mm. So, this, I mean, these are somewhat draconian measures, no? I mean, this is very, uh, it's almost inflexible, but it seems, I remember when reading the book, that he's, he's, it's almost like he's trying to mm, not prove a point just to say or prove a point, but to, to make a stand that, just like you said, this isn't just, uh, theological or rhetorical or symbolic, but that this is pragmatic and this is a part of life. And here's how we have governing principles of how to do that. Is that, I mean, obviously there's a religious component, you know, he's, he's religious, but is it also a kind of, um, a way of saying we're going to, how we should have in the sense of a society and a culture of, of rule of law we're going to have it this way through a lens of uh, a, a religion that is Christianity. I mean, that was very intentional, right? It wasn't just, okay, for religious people. This was for society and culture at large. Absolutely. And just as I said, I think in some ways uh, we think too much in terms of Justinian trying to restore a lost Roman world. What he's really engaged in is an attempt to bring to completion the Christianization of the Roman state that had been initiated by Constantine and his heirs over a much slower, a much more pragmatic process. And to uh, what he's engaged in, as I argue, is an attempt to effectively reconstitute the Roman state into something much more like the sort of confessional states we would encounter in the later medieval and early modern period, whereby the league, the civil, uh, the, the legal rights of the emperor's subjects at civil law will be determined by their officially reckoned degree of religious conformity. In one of his laws, he describes his empire as an orthodox republic, mm. orthodox state. This is central to his vision, and this is very important and very new. And this is also informed by his sense that the empire can only be successful in the military sphere, in the political sphere, in any sphere, if it has God's favour. In order to achieve God's favor, to win God's favor and secure it, he has to engage in the moral improvement and catharsis of his society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, 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 I mean, there, there, there's almost a way of yes, it's 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 you know tough, and it's 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 very kind of almost uh, not authoritarian, but it, there is a kind of strong approach to it. But you almost can sort of respect it of saying, well, he was trying to really, you know, kind of walk the talk. And there's a kind of admiration, at least for me, it's like, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with it. But at the time, that's a, it's admirable that he was at least trying to really to do that. Well, I think you, 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 you have, you have, uh, you have hardline elements in the, in the, in the Christian church, in the imperial church at this time, who look at what Justinian's doing and say, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. 
and what's in a sense interesting is that what we get reflected in Justin's legislation is a lot of the rhetoric of the more hardline Christian moralists of the Roman Church of this period. At the same time, to more conservative members of the Roman governing classes who have much more of a sort of a live and let live attitude, this is despotic. Justinian's breaking all the rules of how an emperor is meant to behave. It, people, are, of course, this is a Christian empire. People are meant to, uh, expected to pretend to be Christian. But you don't really question whether they're just pretending. You don't really uh, send investigative officers around to work out if, con- if, if conversions are genuine or not. Let people just appear to conform. By seeking to go beyond that, Justinian is, an, is felt by many more conservative members of the Roman governing classes to be breaking the rules. And this is why in the writings of Procopius and others, his is regarded as an age of unprecedented tyranny. So it depends what, what side you're on, as it were, in these culture wars of the 6th century, which are, which are very pronounced. Now, of course, he's also willing to be pragmatic in the sense that you know, his, his, his policy agenda goes well beyond what is practicable, what is actually achievable in the context of a pre-industrial society. Mm. This is a form of totalitarianism without the machinery of a totalitarian state. Mm. Uh, uh, and so you know, we, we can see him being much more pragmatic in certain there'll be situations, contexts, where the size of the dissident congregations or the non-Christian communities on the ground will make it politically impossible for Justinian's laws to be meaningfully put into effect. He will negotiate with these communities when it's in his interest to do so. He will grant them exemptions from his legislation. But those exemptions that we see recorded in some of his laws only make sense against a broader background of attempted imposition. And it's that that attempted imposition that really um, scandalizes more conservative elements of political society, and which I think really does mark his reign out from that of any of his uh, predecessors. Now, some people may not know this or associate it, and some people may only know or commonly know uh, Justinian for uh, a big, big piece here, which is the Adia Sophia, uh, which is, you know, obviously a, a, a absolutely beautiful uh, uh, structure in uh, current day Istanbul, formerly known as Constantinople. I haven't been there yet. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very wanting to go there so bad. Uh, I'm assuming you've been. Have you been to the Adia Sophia? I have, I'm, I'm, I'm going back there again, um, all being well on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so lucky. How, just as a as an aside here, I mean, how beautiful is it really uh, in real life when you're when you're in there and 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 yeah, just 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 describe it, I guess. Uh, well, I'm about to, I, I'm turning on Sunday for the first time since it's been restored to being a mosque. Mm. So, so it will be very different, I think, on this occasion in terms of the visibility mm. of of a lot of the. Um, uh, of the the Byzantine Christian decoration, which during the period when it was a museum was visible. So I, I so I, I I can't really comment on what it looks like at the moment because I haven't mm. yet seen that. Mm. Uh, as a space, it is completely overpowering. I mean, until the 16th century, uh, it was the largest uh, uh, domed structure to our knowledge anywhere in the world. Mm. Uh, what we don't, what even before it's before it was restored as a mosque. Uh, the modern version, the modern viewer can't really appreciate is the extent to which um, when Justinian had it built, it was really an extraordinary combination 
not just of architecture in terms of this vast space with this enormous central dome, mm -hmm. but also of lighting engineering and mm -hmm. sound engineering that was meant to work in synergy with the, with, with the, the imperial liturgy. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the windows were blocked in over the course of the Byzantine and Ottoman period. The acoustics are changed when you have carpet and curtains for uh, Muslim prayer and so on and the covering of images. Uh, it's lost a lot of its internal luster as well as its external luster. The original was um, uh, uh, decorated with uh, marble cladding, as it were, which would have caught the rays of the sun. So, mm. so the, the effect today is very different to how it would originally have been viewed. Yeah, mm, That's very interesting. What was, the, I guess, the motivation for him building, uh, building this and then also other iconic structures for Christianity? Was this a type of... Um, I don't know. I don't want to say it in this in a kind of casual way, but was it a type of productive kind of propaganda? Is it this kind of way of saying like, you know, look at this, look at, we need to have symbols and the, you know, these things are important. I guess what was the motivation for, for this specifically, and but all other iconic structures that he had? Very, very much so. Um, the, the immediate background to the uh, uh, construction of Hagia Sophia was that Justin's relations with members of the senatorial aristocracy were pretty tense the moment he comes to the throne, um, uh, made worse by his determination to tax them more effectively. Uh, and in the year 532, there was a major uprising of the population in Constantinople, partly funded, one suspects, by some of these senatorial interests, uh, which uh, tries to drive him from, the th him from the throne. And we're told he almost takes flight, but is, uh, is persuaded to stay by his wife, the indomitable Empress uh, Theodora, with whom he really regards himself really as, as reigning the emperor jointly, the empire jointly. Mm -hmm. Now, during the course of those riots, much of the monumental centre of Constantinople is destroyed. So he has to rebuild. But he takes advantage of the destruction now to rebuild the monumental heart of Constantinople in honour, in the glorification of himself, his empress, the regime, and God. And the point with his reconstructed Hagia Sophia is that it is meant on one level to surpass uh, a church that had been recently built by a member of one of these great aristocratic interests he'd come into conflict with. There'd been earlier a great church built by an aristocratic woman called Aniclia Juliana, called St. Polyuctus. On one level, uh, Hagia Sophia is meant to now dwarf uh, 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 St. Polyuctus and put the architectural ambitions of the Constantinopolitan aristocracy in their place. Um, uh, it is meant to uh, uh, dominate the heart of the city and to draw the minds of his subjects to the beneficent nature of his rule and the extent to which this is a city which he regards to be under divine protection. At the same time, both in response to the Nica riots and the, as we call those riots, and the uh, destruction they cause, and more generally, Justinian, more than any emperor before him, it invests very heavily in church building across the landscape of Constantinople, the townscape of Constantinople. Previously, emperors had tended to give money to the church and the church then built churches. Emperors themselves tended to invest in more secular monuments. Just With Justinian, we see a major shift towards church building uh, uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, uh, works commissioned by the emperor. And this is part of an attempt to as I say, so as it were, bring Constantine's work to completion, to more fully Christianize the landscape, and to impose the emperor's personality upon it. Um, there was a brilliant American Byzantine architectural historian who passed away recently, Robert Oosterhout, who uh, 
who describes how what Justinian effectively is doing is turning the city of Constantine into the city of Justinian. And I think that sums it up very nicely. Uh, it's very nicely said. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yes, it's, it's very, it's very, very interesting. I always wonder when, when you see these big, you know, structures the things that last for centuries afterwards, millennia afterwards, you know, what's the kind of future planning there? Of like, you know, when people you see, you go to different countries and you see cathedrals and things like that. And it's like, you know, this is going to be here 1500 years from now. And I want to make sure people know who built this, you know, and that, then why this, you know, there's this interesting kind of, uh, perspective or future kind of acclaim as well. I would have to imagine is no. Well, also I think what's extraordinary is I say Justinian's always in a hurry. Uh, this is true in his legal works. It's true in his building works as well. Uh, and uh, uh, the construction of Hagia Sophia is regarded by contemporaries as nearly miraculous. And it's regarded as miraculous uh, in two terms, in, in two respects. First of all, it's sheer scale. Mm. No one had ever tried to build a domed structure uh, of this scale before, which poses enormous architectural and engineering challenges. The internal height was equivalent to a, a 15-story uh, building. Secondly, and the design was so audacious that later sources regarded it as having been revealed to the emperor by an angel. Mm. And secondly, it's just extraordinary speed. We think about the centuries it would sometimes take uh, in the medieval West to build a cathedral. Well, this is completed in, in, in pretty much in, in, in under five years, effectively. The scale of the construction is, 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 is quite remarkable and the, and the speed of it even more so. Yeah, yeah, that, well, that's, a, that's a whole other... Uh, achievement, in, in, even in itself, so it's, it's it's quite remarkable. So as as he's as he's moving along through his his reign, and he starts to in the book, you have this new part of the book about expansion. Uh, you talk about you mentioned them earlier, the the the, the Vandals. Uh, you talk about Carthage, um, and you talk about his his movement into into Africa in five thirty four. Uh, could you talk about? Uh, this part of his his reign with going into Africa, then he goes into Italy, uh, and, and and also some of the other uh, groups that he was interacting with, such as the Vandals and and, uh, and others. Yes. Yeah, so what you've had, uh, as I said, over the course of the fifth century, is a, a fragmentation of the Roman Empire in the West, and the emergence of a series of autonomous kingdoms, uh, primarily under barbarian rule. Um, uh, some of these kingdoms sort of continue to pay lip service to the idea of the ongoing sovereignty and authority of the emperor emanating from Constantinople, but many of them don't. And from a Constantinopolitan perspective, the most important of these successor kingdoms will be the Goths, who establish themselves in Italy, ruling the, in the imperial heartlands there, dominating, controlling Rome, and the Vandals in Africa, uh, the, the Vandals establishing themselves there. Uh, over the course of the 530s and 540s. The point with Africa being that it had been the wealthiest province of the Western Roman Empire, uh, very locked into patterns of Mediterranean trade, and the Vandals also control many of the islands of the central and western Mediterranean, allowing them to tax and control a lot of those trade routes. Uh, in both uh, Italy and Africa, the Goths and the Vandals, respectively, are also devotees of the theology of the 4th uh, 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 century churchman Arius, who had been condemned as a, a heretic in Constantinople. So these barbarian regimes in, uh, in Africa and Italy are regarded as, in a sense, doubly insulting from the perspective of Justinian and his regimes. It's rightly Roman territory, but ruled over by uh, heretics. 
Now, Justinian doesn't come to the throne, I don't think, with any predetermined plan to recreate and reconquer the Roman territories in the West as a whole. But he is ideologically predisposed to intervene should circumstances permit. Now, these societies that are taking shape in the West in the 5th and 6th centuries are very military societies. They're very king-focused societies. And the king in these societies is meant to be primarily a military leader. So if you have a king at the apex of the society who seems to be militarily ineffective, or if you have a struggle for power at the apex of these societies in terms of a dispute of succession, they become very vulnerable, very prone to attack. And what happens effectively is that in, first of all, Vandal, Africa in the early 530s, and then in Italy in the mid-530s, you have a series of internal power disputes and disputed successions which open the way to military intervention. First of all in Africa, then in Italy, and then in the 550s, Justinian will intervene in Spain, in the so-called Visigothic kingdom there, very much in, in parallel circumstances. You have a struggle for power in Spain, a disputed succession, rival claimants to the throne, the next thing you know, imperial armies are being sent over to try to establish an imperial enclave. In, so in Africa in the 530s, in, uh, in, in 533, in Italy in 535, then in Spain in the 550s, you get this opportunistic imperialism whereby Justinian takes advantage of these political crises in these mm. different kingdoms to try to reestablish imperial control. Mm. How much of this, we, we, we talked about it earlier, so I'm going to kind of link it here at this point. So when he's starting out on his rise to, to be an emperor, he was, you know, a soldier. He was, you know, having this command. At, at this point, uh, during his uh, campaigns in Africa and Italy, you know, how much of that do you, you, you think it was kind of in the workings of how he wanted to approach these things, how he wanted to take advantage of some of the, you know, local political conflicts? How much of it, I guess, tactically or, 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 uh, ways in which he was trying to formulate this, where he was trying to decisively uh, get at these places, how much of that was in the mix, or was it just him being emperor already and he was using that, or both of it? W what do you kind of think about the the ways in which he he kind of went about doing this? I think some of this probably goes back to his uncle Justin. Mm. Uh, I think some members of the Constantinopolitan elite the Byzantine elite, the Roman elite, call them what you like, in the early 6th century, probably don't care that much about what's happened in the West. Mm. If you're a landowner whose estates are primarily in Syria, it's the Persians you most care about. You might not even really understand what's happened in Italy or North Africa. You might think these kings there are sort of Roman client kings. I think that different other elements of the Byzantine elite and the, and the establishment are much more concerned about it. And I think that in particular, men of military background who come from the Western Balkans and who have seen uh, the ravages of barbarian attack in the mid-fifth century, like Justin, are going to be much more anti-barbarian and much more ideologically predisposed to intervene in the West militarily if they get the chance. I, mean, I think it's important we see a hardening of attitudes and a growing readiness to, to destabilise relations in the West between Romans and non-Romans from the reign of Justin onwards. So I think there's an element of continuity there. I think it's part of the, the milieu in which Justinian is being raised of these so-called Illyrian officers and soldiers who are going to be a bit more anti-barbarian and a bit more likely to intervene. Mm. 
That having been said, I think it's also important that Justinian has quite a, a, a connected view of the empire as a whole, that he, as with many of the emperors before him, still has this core sense that whilst there are opportunities for expansion to the West, should circumstances allow, the real threat comes from the East. Mm. And so I think he's very careful to try to ensure that these Western campaigns are never at the expense of the defences of the Eastern provinces. And I think this is something that people sometimes get wrong. Mm. That we have no, the armies that he sends West aren't small, but we have no evidence for any substantial reallocation of large numbers of troops from the Eastern frontier to the West. And the complaint of Justinian's generals in the West will always be that he never quite sends them enough troops. And if he did, the campaign in Italy, for example, could have been brought to a conclusion rather more rapidly. Mm. Mm. That's very, very interesting. So it's interesting how sometimes, it, uh, 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 in an American context, sometimes we used to have these ideas of, well, how, how does a general, uh, you know, then how is he a president or how does he govern? And obviously, much different, but it's always interesting how people, uh, when you're an emperor of a whole empire, you're wearing different hats and some you'll do well and others you won't do as well. And so it's interesting to see him as, you know, looking at these kind of military ideas and how he wants to organize things, who he's putting in these certain, uh, uh, theaters, uh, et cetera. It's, it's very, it's very, very, very interesting. And he, he doesn't, I mean, in general, he isn't someone who likes to devolve. He, he has mm. trouble letting go. Mm. Uh, but I think it's very important that in the, he's forged during his time as a general. Clearly, this this this, this relationship with the gen, with the, the this uh, soldier Belisarius, whom he, he appoints as a general early on in his reign, and he entrusts the campaigns in first of all Africa and then Italy to Belisarius. And when he sends Belisarius west, I think he's entrusting Belisarius with quite a, a loose mandate, trusting him enough to be able to sort of develop the levels of imperial ambition and the scale of ambition in the light of what Belisarius encounters on the ground. Mm. So should resistance be tough, you pretend you're just going to Africa to punish the Vandal uh, regime for deposing the king whom Justinian had previously acknowledged. But if you find that actually their resistance isn't up to much, then you can go for a more full-blown intervention leading mm. ultimately to a takeover, which is what he achieves in Africa. And again, I think we see in, in Italy evidence for uh, Belisarius uh, being rather more territorial and aggressive than some of Justinian's diplomats uh, mm. like or wanted him to be. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So kind of more on the, the psychological piece, you mentioned in the book, he, he was Justinian was kind of known as the sleepless emperor. <laughs> He was always doing so many things. Yeah. So, where do you think he got all this energy uh, as his as he you know his reign continues? How do you how do we start to see some of the effects of the laws that he has started to instantiate, whether the religious laws or whether there are other types of laws that he's placed in empire? Where do we start to see the the impact of the effects there, and um, and more so of, of where he's getting all of this energy to to continue to do all of these things? I think, once again, here, it's, it's, it's a question of um, personality and stamina and nature of the man. I think it's important that, that both his own propaganda and the writings of his critics agree that he is a workaholic. Um, so the historian Procopia satirizes this in terms of uh, uh, saying, you know, he must be a demon because other people need to go to sleep and to eat, but he's always pacing the palace uh, late at night. 
His legislation addresses almost every aspect uh, of life as lived in uh, 6th century Constantinople with a, a real focus on trying to raise tax revenues, making the tax system more efficient, making the legal system speedier and more efficient, cracking down on corruption uh, and cracking down on, as I said, religious dissidents. But also, I think, you know, he's being encouraged by his wife. And the, the political alliance and the personal alliance between Justinian and the Empress Theodora is really important and really profound, such that as he presents their rule until her death in the, peri- in the year 548, in many ways as a period of joint rule, he expressly acknowledges in his legislation that he consults her on important laws, and she can be seen to have lobbied him in certain respects on legislation, particularly to improve the lot of, uh, 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 of women and vulnerable girls. She herself having uh, come from seemingly uh, very lowly uh, origins, and as both pro and anti Theodora sources agree, probably having spent the early part of her life certainly as an actress and possibly as a prostitute. Mm. Was that common uh, for there to be a kind of, you know, your wife to kind of, in his mind, to say that we're, we're co-leading the empire? Was that, was that a common thing or how, how unique, I guess, was that dynamic? It's, in the 5th century, empresses in Constantinople had periodically been quite influential, but no one is accorded the sort of political status and role that Justinian accords to Theodora. Uh, and likewise, I mean, throughout the Justinian is attempting to build up a personality, personality cult. He found cities which he names after himself. He's not the only person to do that. He has his name put up in inscriptions all over the place. He names new governmental offices after himself. But in, we look in uh, Hagia Sophia, he's putting up his uh, monogram all over the cathedral. But he's putting his wife's up too. Mm. He's founding cities named after himself. He's founding cities named after her too. Uh, I say the, 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 uh, he he makes um, uh, imperial governors swear a personal oath of loyalty, not just to him, mm. but also to his wife. That is really very unusual, and that mm. again uh, really aggravates and alienates mm. conservative critics who regard that sort of thing as really very un-Roman. Mm. Mm. Interesting. It must. I mean, he must have just had like an unshakable bond and must have trusted her. I mean, there, there has to be motivations for that. I mean, he must have really, yeah. I mean, had this, this like, you know, I mean, deep, deep, deep intimacy and connection with her to, to, to put well, that much. Well, one thing I think he's inherited from his uncle is a romantic streak. Mm. Again, Justin is, Justinian is raised in the palace. Uh, all our sources agree that one thing that he and his uncle have in common is their good looks. Uh, he's, he's good looking, he's well connected, he's successful. Mm. He could have got himself a very posh bride. Mm. Instead, he falls in love in middle age uh, with this woman who is 10 years younger than himself, but no spring chicken when they get together, um, who's had a very disreputable past, who arrives in Constantinople uh, with an illegitimate daughter, though she seems uh, to have uh, become very religious, as it were, uh, prior to her arrival there. And they, they, they forge a very close bond. Uh, they live together prior to getting married. The main reason for this seems to be that um, his, his aunt, the Empress Euphemia, Justin's uh, wife, the ex-slave girl, can't stand Theodora, mm. doesn't like her, wants Justinian to have a proper, probably posh Roman bride. Uh, and he really has to wait until 
his aunt dies before they can get married. And also because Theodora has had this disreputable past. By this point, Justinian is a senator. She's been at best an actress. Uh, he has to get his uncle to change the law in order for their marriage to be made legal. All of this, I think, really conveys his extraordinary devotion to this woman. Yeah, I mean, absolutely so. I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, it's quite, it's quite incredible. And I think it's, it's nice that we have these, this kind of look into to their kind of dynamics. I think that's very helpful. The, I guess the, the last question I have on this piece, I mean, we've talked about it a lot, so I don't want to belabor it, but you, you mentioned how, how has Justinian transformed the Roman Empire into a confessional state? So this is kind of back on the, the, the religious components here. I just, I guess the question I have here is a lot of these religious laws, a lot of uh, punishment for, for dissidents, things like that, for pagans. But, you know, how did people receive him? How do they receive all these laws where there's like, you know, these, you know, like, we don't want to do this or, you know, this isn't, this isn't, this is too far or what was it? Or they're just like, yes, we're going to do anything you say. Like, what was the, this confessional state that you mentioned uh, during, you know, the, the, the middle to latter, I guess, part of his, his reign there? So, uh, just to clarify what it is consisting of in terms of his legislation, what he's trying to do, as I say, he makes it illegal not only to perform pagan rites, but even to be a pagan, mm-hmm. or do they convert, go into exile, or die. Uh, with his uncle, he has banned non-Christians and heretics from holding any military or governmental post, and he bans them from teaching. Strictly speaking, he ordains that only Orthodox Christian heirs could inherit property under the full protection of the law. So this is giving bickering relatives, fighting over inheritances, an incentive to convert. He says in, a, I think, a law that gives one a sense of how brutal these relations could be on the ground. He, 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 he passes a law that even upper class heretics and Jews who would previously have been uh, uh, immune from such activities can be beaten up by state officials. Mm. Mm. Uh, and he has uh, government officials being sent around the empire to hunt down pagans, to hunt down heretics, and to investigate uh, people's religious stance. Now, of course, there would have been a great deal of regional variation in this, as I've um, uh, said earlier. But I think what we see is a concerted effort to, to demoralize, to intimidate, and cajole such groups into religious conformity. No emperor had acted in so harsh a way as Justinian. Now, of course, you will have the, the imposition of the law on the ground requires the cooperation of local office holders, local officials, local judges, local governors, local bishops. Some of these officials will be men who share the mindset of Procopius, but this is all very un-Roman, and they'll sort of try to let people get away with their non-conformity. There's also a long-standing tradition in the Roman world that if there's a law you don't like, you bribe someone to look the other way. <laughs> right? You bribe governors or bishops to look the other way, to leave you alone. There's going to be a lot of that going on. But it does mean in those localities, in those circumstances, where the ambitions of the emperor uh, align with the, uh, uh, the ideological, political, and religious stance of the local governor or the local bishop, mm. then these laws can be put into effect in a very draconian uh, mm. way. So we have, uh, for example, an inscription from the city of Sardis detailing uh, the punishment of pagans who have been arrested and tried uh, mm. just during Justinian's reign. Uh, as I say, it's, um, uh, uh, but this idea that the more religiously orthodox you are, the greater your legal rights are, mm. is uh, very important. And that will be a major uh, in- inheritance 
Uh, in some ways, it believed in it being influenced on early Islamic law, where in, in a sense, uh, what will happen is in early Islam is that the difference will be that the Orthodox Christians, instead of being at the apex of the system, will be one of the relatively marginalized groups. Mm. It's sort of inverted. Yeah, it's very, very, very fascinating how that kind of plays out. So kind of towards the, the, the end of his, 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 uh, his reign, uh, in the 40s, 540s, he, he has a plague and war and, and many things like this that are occurring. How did he deal with that and what kind of an impact did that, that uh, have on him? I think it's very important to appreciate. We sort of, because we know about the Black Death and things, we sort of imagine the medieval past as being filled, always filled with these pandemics. But nothing could have prepared either the empire or the emperor for the bubonic plague which struck in the 540s. No previous pandemic of this scale or intensity had struck the empire in the past, and we shouldn't underestimate its possible ramifications until the development of modern medicine. Bubonic plague was one of the deadliest diseases known to humanity. But despite that, what I think is really interesting is that the initial response of Justinian and his ministers in that crucial period from the advent of the plague in 541-2 down to about 546 was really very impressive. And despite the disorientating circumstances in which they found themselves, we see a series of concerted, crisis-driven measures aimed at containing the initial ravages of the, of the disease and its impact. Um, uh, or the organization of mass graves in Constantinople to get rid of the dead, attempts to impose price and wage control to stop um, shortages of labor and the breakdown of the supply system from leading to the collapse of the urban economies of the empire, the introduction of new legal courts to allow bankers to pursue the debtors of people who have died in the plague, um, currency reforms to try to address uh, uh, short-term crises in uh, imperial income due to taxpayers dying at a time when uh, the expenditure required of the state would have remained at least constant. These are, I think, a, a series of remarkably well-considered measures from the, those years of 542 to 546 that probably meant that although, of course, the empire suffered a very major financial crisis by virtue of the advent of the bubonic plague and its subsequent recurrences, what we don't have is a total collapse of a sort that might have been possible. Um, uh, I think it gets harder once we move, as we, as we start getting repeated recurrences of, of the plague and the problems caused by it become cumulative. I think the real problems caused by the plague will come to the fore more than from the late 540s, the 550s into the 560s. Mm. Likewise, it's going to cause major problems in terms of military recruitment and manpower. Uh, mm. In a, a, a recent book on the Byzantine army, Anthony Caldelis has acknowledged that the shortages caused by the plague are probably responsible for a military weakening of the empire as you move into the, the, the later 6th century. And that's important because Anthony's been quite sceptical about aspects of the plague uh, in the past. Again, what we see is, I think, genuine evidence for troop shortages causing problems at a time when the empire is having to face simultaneous warfare to both East and West, which is having to do increasingly in the 540s, but also Justinian's recruiting sergeants trying to address this by going on major recruitment drives, trying to stop landowners from keeping souls in their estates to beat up their peasants and so on. So as we, so we, we see the empire and his administrators straining every nerve to try to hold this system together. And I think in many respects, they do remarkably well. 
And I think we, we have to be careful not to assume that just because the empire does sort of hold together, that the plague wasn't very severe and very serious. I think really the, the way in which the empire holds together is more to do with the remarkable efforts of Justinian and his regime rather than to do with the nature of the disease itself, which we should take very seriously. Yeah, well, especially when you're talking about it in a totally different time period, where you know what, what were the, how were they able to, to contain this? What were they thinking about it? You know, obviously very far from modern medicine. But it's interesting though that he he has some personal and political losses, and then the military power begins to dwindle. So maybe some of this was from from the plague, but. How did he deal with these personal political losses and then and then starting to lose some of the military might? Yes, I, I, we're told that he himself is recorded to have been struck by the plague, that he recovers from it, and this might have taken a physical and psychological toll. There's also a, a religious response to the plague, whereby it makes him even more determined to try to secure divine favour. It becomes even more theological in focus and even more determined to root out immorality. So I think that it intensifies that aspect of his reign. So there's the plague aspect. And then in 548, as I mentioned earlier, Theodora dies. And this too, I think, seems to have taken some of the wind out of his sails. And certainly it seems to have elicited anxieties on the part of some of his commanders in the West that the empire, emperor sort of lost interest in the Italian campaign. We have a real stiffening of Gothic resistance at this time. But uh, although I think the emperor's interests and focus becomes even more theological and even more religious by virtue of both the plague and the death of his wife. We do see him and those around him starting to regain composure and focus in the end, such that, and this is again something I think is overlooked. I think often people think of a period of great um, creativity and expansion early in the reign, brought to an end by the plague, then it's all downhill. It's not as simple as that. In the 550s, we see a number of really important innovations uh, and, uh, 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 and adventures, such as the sending of the army to Spain that I mentioned, and a really fascinating and remarkable act of industrial espionage, whereby Justinian's agents will steal the lucrative secret of silk production mm. from, the, from the East. Mm. Uh, and the Byzantine silk industry will then become a major source of imperial revenues. Mm. Down into the 560s, we also see a really important expansion and consolidation of the empire's control in the Caucasus. So again, this is a regime where even late in his reign, even as he's getting old, even after the death of his wife, he does regain composure and he is capable still of um, a very targeted and effective interventions. Hmm. And, and yet, do you, you, you do mention that there was some isolation that he experienced late in his life. That he was, he did have some losses and he was isolated. What, what do you make of that, especially right by, towards the time when he, when he, when he, when he dies? What yes, do you, I think, what do you I, think, I, think that? I think later in life, he does become more isolated. He becomes more paranoid. Mm. He's got reason to be paranoid, given that there are members of courtly society and the senatorial elite are constantly plotting against him, and there are assassination attempts down into the 560s. I think like a lot of old men, he prefers to surround himself with men and courtiers of his own generation, sure. whom he found it easier to understand and whom he was more inclined uh, to trust. Uh, 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 but at the end of the day, I, mean, I think he, he starts to fall ill in the 560s. He has to 
He's taken almost a clearly convalescence trips outside of the imperial city, mm. uh, which are justified to, to political society in Constantinople through all sorts of, of means. But at the end of the day, despite all of the plots against him, despite all the machinations, despite having suffered a bubonic plague, at the end of the day, he dies a very old man, aged about 83, probably mm. just of old age, mm. uh, drawing to a close one of the three longest reigns in the entirety of Roman history. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, well, I mean, look, listen, I mean, 83 is old by today's standards, but by, yeah. by those standards, I mean, he was basically, you know, <laughs> could have been 300 years old. I mean, 83 was long. One of the great, one of the great, you know, his, his, his longevity astounds his admirers and enormously demoralizes his opponents. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> so I guess the last question I have for you here is, you know, what is the, I guess the, the legacy of Justinian. I mean, again, as I said in the beginning, I mean, you've written a fabulous book, really giving him uh, due credit. And and I guess what is it that you want uh, people to know uh, most importantly about Justinian? Why he's important? Why we should still study him and 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 learn about his life and and the impact that he's had on on uh, you know uh, human history and civilization. Well, I think we have a, a tendency, as I say, by virtue of this dependence on the perspective of Procopius and Procopius's military narratives and the Western reconquests, to judge Justinian's legacy in terms of what happens to those Western reconquests after his reign. None of these territories will mostly be lost relatively rapidly in the context of a rearticulation and reconfiguration of the world around Byzantium. And so Justinian's often thought of as a, as, as a failure. But as I try to emphasize in the book, Justinian's chief priorities had really always been in the field of law and in the field of religion. And in those two spheres, his legacy would endure. At the end of the day, Roman law, as it would be transmitted to the Middle Ages and in the form which would serve as the basis for the legal systems that would operate across the entirety of Europe until the age of Napoleon and much of the world uh, uh, beyond it, was Roman law, civil law as defined by Justinian and his legal commissioners. So that legal legacy is immense. And there's also a legal legacy to the world of Islam as well. Mm. Again, he, it is in the form that Justinian's theologians and the emperor and his court define Christian orthodoxy, that Christianity will be received to both East and West in the early Middle Ages. Mm. But more fundamentally in terms of his Western legacy, the vision Justinian has of a Christian society uh, regulated and presided over by an active and pious monarch will not simply come to serve as the heart of Byzantine ideology in the centuries ahead, but will also serve as the core and kernel ideological framework of Western Latin Christendom as it will take shape in the centuries ahead where clerical authorities and royal authorities will also crack down on religious dissidents and minorities, uh, doing so inspired by legislation that had been issued by Justinian. So Justinian will provide the framework for the development of Western Christendom moving forward. But in both the Muslim world and the Christian world, his model of active and energetic rulership across so long a reign will come to redefine what it means to rule. And so he will emerge as a model of uh, good rulership to Byzantine emperors, medieval kings, 
Muslim caliphs and sultans. I think it's also worth bearing in mind beyond that, uh, his legacy in the cultural sphere, not only in terms of uh, delineating the confessional state, which would then have a, a new lease of life in late medieval and early modern Europe, and which will play a fundamental part to the development of the modern state, but also even in, term, in terms of fields as diverse as architecture. Justinian's building projects in Constantinople, Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Apostles, will become the model for prestige church building throughout the Christian world. Mm. Also, because Hagia Sophia is turned into a mosque and a prestigious mosque by the Ottoman authorities, it will become the model for prestigious mosque building across the entirety of the Ottoman Empire in Islam and way beyond. So what we have here is an emperor who redefines what it is to rule, redefines the legal and religious legacy of the Roman Empire, which will inform the shaping of societies down to the modern day, and even leaves an imprint on the physical monuments around us in terms of the places of worship uh, uh, which we uh, see or worship in or encounter. Mm. Yeah, this is very well said. The book is called Justinian, uh, Emperor, Soldier, Saint. This is through uh, the wonderful Basic Books. This is out October. Um, Peter, this was so much fun. I greatly, greatly enjoyed this. I, I read your book earlier in the summer, and I really, really uh, loved it. And so I was very excited to talk with you. Uh, is there any place you'd like to point people to, uh, either for your work or, or you know, socially or for the book itself, anywhere in particular you want to point people to? Uh, first of all, thank you again for the invitation. I've, re I've really enjoyed it. Um, there's a huge amount of really good work being uh, written on Byzantium at the moment. Uh, uh, so if you get interested in this topic by virtue of either this podcast or by reading the book, um, I would point you to, for example, there's a really good now um, single volume history of Byzantium uh, written by Anthony Caldelis in a thousand pages that will give you a, a, a version, a new vision of the empire. As a whole, I don't agree with all of it, but you know, but I think it's a terrific book. Um, uh, 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 travel, try to visit these places when you get the mm -hmm. chance. Mm -hmm. Nothing brings this world to life more than actually visiting the locations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, Peter, this is uh, this is so much fun. I really, really enjoyed this. I, I can't say enough thanks for you coming on. Uh, it was really, really valuable for me, and so uh, I wish you all the best. Great, thank you so much. <laughs>